We are inching closer and closer to opening night. The magic number is down to 15. Two weeks from tomorrow, there will be college basketball. And all of us fans, including myself, will rejoice. What's up, everyone? Welcome inside the Igloo. I'm Timmy Ice. And another indicator that the season is almost here, of course, is the arrival of the inaugural AP poll for the season. The preseason poll to start the season was released Monday afternoon. And this was a good poll um, for the most part. Again, for the most part. Because most of the top eight I agreed with, with, you know, you could probably, you know, interchange a few spots. But one through three were as expected. Gonzaga is your number one team in the country. Baylor is number two. And out of the Big East, Villanova is number three. And then following that, the rest of the AP poll, um, you could always view it um, on the NCAA's website as well as on the AP's website. Virginia is number four. Um, All four of the top four teams received at least one vote for the number one spot. Gonzaga led with 28 number one votes. Baylor had 24. Villanova had 11. And Virginia had one. And the race for the top top spot was awfully tight. Gonzaga with 1,541 points. Baylor with 1,540. So literally one point separating the number one and two teams in the country. Villanova not too far behind at 1,501. And then Virginia a bit more distant at 1,364. Iowa rounds out the top five. And then you have Kansas at six. Wisconsin and Illinois at seven and eight. And then rounding out the top 10, two Blue Bloods, Duke and Kentucky. And those top 10 teams were the only teams getting over 1,000 points in the poll. Meanwhile, Creighton, the only other Big East team in the top 25 at number 11. Tennessee is 12. Michigan State coming in at 13. And then Texas Tech, West Virginia at 14 and 15. North Carolina... (laughs) I I still think they're ranked way too high at number 16. Houston, 17. Arizona State, 18. Texas, 19. Oregon at 20. Florida State at 21. UCLA, 22. Ohio State, Rutgers, and Michigan, all from the Big Ten, rounding out the top 25. And then 18 teams received votes, three of which came from the Big East, being Providence, UConn, and Seton Hall. Now, in terms of, you know, where they rank in terms of, you know, the number of votes they received. Providence would be on the 9 line, UConn on the 10 line, Seton Hall would be around an 11 seed. Which, Providence being a 9 seed sounds about right to me. However, I just think UConn and Seton Hall are way too low. I I got UConn right around the, the 7 line. With 10 seed being like a worst case scenario, really. And then Seton Hall's an 11 seed, kind of the same thing. I have them, you know, best case scenario being a 7 seed because I think they have borderline top 25 talent. 
But realistically, I got them in an eight seed scenario, like between an eight and a ten seed is where I kind of see them, really. So, overall, my thoughts on the top 25. I mean, the teams that should be in the top 25 are in it. But there are some teams that are ranked a little too high, like North Carolina. There are some teams that might be ranked a little too low. Like, for example, a team like Michigan State. I think, hopefully, if you get Joshua Langford back, that's going to make this team a whole lot better. Um, you know, he's been dealing with injuries each of the last two years. And when he's healthy, he is arguably Michigan State's best player. Now, I know they lose a lot. You know, no Cassius Winston, no Xavier Tillman. But getting Joey Hauser ready for this year is going to be important for them. And same goes with Virginia being at number four um, with Joey's brother Sam now being eligible. Uh, Virginia is going to be a force to be reckoned with. They're by far, in my opinion, the best team in the ACC. And then, of course, the Big Ten is going to be the juggernaut in college basketball this year. They have seven teams in the top 25. And then on top of that, um, you have one other team that was uh, receiving top 25 votes. That was Indiana, who, uh, according to this, uh, based on the number of votes they received, is ranked 30th in the country. So, I will say this, though. I'm a little bit surprised that there weren't more teams that received votes. Especially, you know, you take a look at some teams that did receive votes. Two teams from the Missouri Valley received votes, Loyola Chicago and Northern Iowa. UNC Greensboro out of the Southern Conference even got a vote. But I was just befuddled by the fact that a team like Marquette didn't get a vote. I understood maybe, you know, teams like Xavier Butler and St. John's who are 7-8-9 in the preseason poll in the Big East. I understood why they didn't get a preseason top 25 vote. But Marquette, I think they're going to be sneaky good this year. I really, really believe that. So, I thought they should have at least gotten a vote because of, you know, some of the talent that they bring back, you know, Kobe McEwen, Theo John, leading the way as seniors on this team, uh, bringing in DJ Carton from Ohio State. Hopefully you get Jose Perez eligible this year, and then, of course, you bring in Dawson Garcia, the preseason freshman of the year in the Big East. That's going to make this team pretty solid and, in my mind, a, a definite tournament team. I just don't think there's any question about it. You know, people can question it as much as they want, but to me, I don't think there's a shadow of a doubt. Marquette is going to be an NCAA tournament team. It's just a matter of, you know, they're going to probably going to be in that vicinity kind of like a Seton Hall where they could be between 8 and 10 with 7 being the ceiling. But obviously, they got a lot of stuff to figure out themselves with replacing Marcus Howard and his scoring production. But that's the reason why we play the games. And, you know, we're going to find out real soon, you know, two weeks from now, you know, if Marquette's going to be up to the task of replacing 
one of the all-time greats, not just at Marquette, but in all of college basketball. So those are my thoughts on Marquette and just the rest of the AP uh, Top 25 poll to start the year. Um, I talked about UConn with them receiving votes. They got six in the poll, which seems a little bit low, but coming up next to give me some more insight on the UConn Huskies, both present and past, is UConn alum and current uh broadcaster for ESPN Radio in Hartford for UConn Athletics, Adam Giardino. He will join me next to talk some Husky hoops here on the Igloo, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Well, there's a new dog in the kennel in the Big East. You know, this conference is full of dogs. You know, the Butler Bulldogs, Georgetown's Hoyas have a Bulldog mascot, and a new dog is in the yard, and that is the Yukon Huskies. Well, not necessarily a new dog uh, per se, because they were one of the original dogs in this league, but they are back after a seven-year hiatus. And joining me now, a guy who knows a lot about Yukon, is fellow Central New York native like me. Uh, he attended Yukon from 2007 to 2011, and he is now part of the Yukon radio broadcast team on ESPN Radio in Hartford. And he is in and around all their athletic programs. Uh, specifically, he fills in for women's basketball. Their incredible program led by Gina Oriema. Does sidelines for football as well as men's ice hockey and baseball. Uh, so joining me uh, from uh, the greater New England region, Adam Giardino. Adam, pleasure to have you on. Hey, Tim. Thank you for having me. Yeah, coming in from uh, Central Mass, Worcester, Massachusetts, about an hour north of where UConn's campus is. And I do some work for other schools in Boston and Providence. So it's a nice central location to, uh, to stay involved with all that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Providence, you know, one of the uh, few biggie cities, you know, I've actually been to. I, I cannot say good enough things about that uh, quiet little city, uh, you know, but we'll definitely touch on Providence, uh, a little bit later on, uh, with a bit of a local robbery with the Huskies. Uh, but, uh, let's get a little bit of background on you. Uh, like I said, you know, you're a UConn grad 2007 to 2011, you were there and your senior year in particular, um, was quite the ride and a bit unexpected to say the least, but you got to see that ride at the very end, the roller coaster that it was, um, but with a lot of highs um, that led to UConn's third national championship um, under Jim Calhoun. Uh, just take me back now that we're approaching the 10 year anniversary of it coming up uh, in just a few months. Uh, just take me back to what, you know, that crazy stretch 11 games in 24 days was like. It was absolutely incredible. And to be a senior, anyone that was in my grade at UConn, you know, junior, sophomore, really it was anyone that was on campus that year that was a sports fan. It was an incredible time. Women's basketball team set the record for 90-game win streak, which they have since eclipsed. Uh, the football team, which is not the strongest program at the moment, they made the Fiesta Bowl after winning the Big East and lost to Oklahoma. And then the, the baseball program was riding high with George Springer in center field and Matt Barnes on the hill, and they made a super regional. So, you know, uh, men's basketball that year winning a national title and doing something historic by winning five games in five days at Madison Square Garden 
winning the Big East title, going from being unranked at the start of the year to finishing the regular season in the top 25, but finishing the regular season ninth in the Big East. So that they needed to play the inaugural game of that uh, five-day stretch, the 9 versus 16 game. They didn't even get a day off to start it. So they had to play DePaul in the 9-16 game. Then they had to play the 8-seed Georgetown. They knocked off Pitt with that famous Kemba Walker step-back jumper in the quarterfinals. And then in the semifinals, a uh, game that went to overtime against Syracuse, the championship, it was against Louisville. And at that point, we were all tickled pink at what had just been accomplished. And so at that point, bracketology going into the five-day stretch had UConn, you know, again, they were fringe top 25. So they were projected to be about a six seed in the NCAA tournament. Again, they were a nine seed in the Big East tournament, which speaks to how strong the conference always is, but was that year as well. And um, they improved their seeding from a six seed to a three seed. And then the run began. They knocked off Bucknell then Cincinnati, then uh, knocked off San Diego State, Arizona. Uh, let's see, in the semifinals, the final four, it was Kentucky and then Butler. And it was incredible. That championship game against Butler – Many people will, will remember it not so fondly as a very ugly championship game. I think the sight lines were off that old weekend at Reliance Stadium in Houston. The players, none of them were shooting well in any of the three games that were played there, uh, the two Final Four games and then the championship game. And the stat that will really stick out to me that might get lost in the shuffle, though, is that UConn's defense, they, they mitigated Butler's interior game. And that was something that was not easy to do. Butler made over a 40-minute game. They made three two-point field goals. It's an inconceivable number. But uh, the defense was incredible that day, and UConn was able to pull out the win. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, it, it's one of the most incredible runs to a national championship that we have ever seen, really. Uh, but I definitely want to go back to the Kemba step back. I mean, it's still one of the most iconic shots, uh, not just – you know, in the history of the Big East, but in all the college basketball, just because of just how much of an ankle breaker it was. I mean, literally, you know, as it was being called on TV, it was a clear mismatch with him against Gary McGee. Uh, but just calling it from where you were in the garden, um, just how insane was it to watch Kemba work his magic and then for him to essentially pull a street ball type move to just – the roar, there was a roar before the shot even went up, uh, but just just take me back to the insanity of that last play, uh, one of the best plays of that entire decade in college basketball. Now, someone that you know, Tim, uh, John Paquette, who's part of the media relations squad with the Big East, he was instrumental for me in that week because we were supposed to be way up in the 400 section. Student radio would have gotten stuck way up there, and instead he grabbed us and said, hey, you're UConn student radio, right? He grabbed us and he brought us down to about the 100 balcony level where there were the hockey radio booths. So we had an absolutely incredible uh, view for that, where if we were a writer or we were student radio, we should have been way, way up above everything else. And my vantage point would have been totally different. It was such an incredible experience. Uh, it was the first game of the day that day. So it was a, a noon start. That shot went in at about 2 o'clock Eastern time. And uh, it was, you know, just to – to watch him do what he did where he at the foul line got McGee going sideways, put him on skates, put him to the court and then hit the jump shot. You know, you, you see that if you watch the NBA postseason this year with what he was doing with the Boston Celtics, it wasn't any game winners, nothing at the buzzer, but he was still 
in crunch time with three minutes left and the Celtics needed a bucket, he still had that move. Ten years later, he's still able to have that quickness, take that jab step, get the defender going back, and then just hit a, a cozy free throw jumper and create enough space for himself. It's incredible that that shot still works. And we're, you know, at the point of the season where he did that, we had seen him do it against Texas on the road in a huge game against the Longhorns. And then we had seen him do it in a a game against Villanova, which ended up being a big regular season win. So that shot, iconic. I am so lucky that as a student, I was able to be there and call that. And uh, that's, that's certainly one of the calls that I will, uh, I'll treasure forever. Yeah, and also just the NCAA tournament run. I mean, you're bouncing over like all over the country. You know, you started in D.C. for the opening rounds and then to Anaheim for the West Regional and then to Houston for the Final Four. Like, at what point does jet lag start kicking your butt? (laughs) You know, it's chartered. So we, as best as you could, it just didn't matter. It's funny, though, that coming back from Anaheim, um, and I, I guess UConn must have had, when we were out in Anaheim, um, we must have had the Thursday-Saturday. In fact, I'm confident that we had the Thursday-Saturday games. So we played Saturday afternoon, evening, and were one of the first two teams to punch their ticket to the Final Four. So then the, the next day, uh, we had flown back. We got in at some ungodly early hour, and I took a nap, as college students are wont to do. But I took a nap and, uh, you know, it was more than a nap. It probably was three or four hours. And I, uh, I woke up and kind of trudged out to the, the living room where my roommates were watching um, the, the other Elite Eight games. And they said, VCU beat North Carolina. And I'd slept through the entire game. They beat Kansas, by the Kansas, way. thank you very much. Yes, they beat Kansas. And then Butler beat North Carolina? Uh, Kentucky beat UNC. Okay. So again, memory is fading a little bit, but it was at it was at the point that UNC and Kansas both got eliminated, where I woke up from a nap. One had already been knocked out. Another one was basically about to be eliminated, and I just looked at my roommates and I said, "UConn's going to win the national title because Kentucky. UConn had Kentucky, and then on the other side of the bracket, it was VCU against Butler, and it was just in my mind, you know, blind confidence. But just seeing everything that we had seen from that team up to that point." Uh, that was the moment where the jet lag just kind of washed away and you thought, wow, this is going to be a really special next week. And I, I, uh, I guess we must have flown out on Thursday, but I can't imagine I was terribly productive Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in class thinking about what was still to come the next weekend where we were going to travel and get to call the final four. I had called the final four two years prior where uh, a team that was – led by Hashim Thabit and A.J. Price and, and, you know, and injured Jerome Dyson, Stanley Robinson, Jeff Adrian. That team made the Final Four and lost to Michigan State at Ford Field. So I'd already tasted it, and it was so exciting to know what we had in front of us. But being a senior, getting to do the play-by-play and sort of realizing that however these games shake out, first against Kentucky, and then if you beat Kentucky, you had VCU or Butler in the championship, you really had to like your chances as one as the team that was going to come away with the national title. And I mean, most certainly they did. Um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, things have kind of uh, taken a turn uh, for UConn uh, in a negative way. Uh, I think the shift to the AAC uh, affected them a little bit. Yes, they did win the 2014 national championship. I mean, 
in a Kemba-esque fashion, you know, with Shabazz Napier taking on the lead role that time around. But uh, this team hasn't been to the tournament since 2016. Uh, but uh, overall, though, what's the sense for UConn fans to be back in the Big East and actually, you know, looking uh, looking forward to actually facing teams that they're familiar with, big-time programs like, you know, Seton Hall, who has, you know, taken a major jump the last five years. Uh, Villanova, who has become a national powerhouse. Creighton, who's made a significant leap, um, even though UConn doesn't really have much familiarity with them. Um, you know, list goes on and on. And even old school rivals like Georgetown and St. John's and Providence ne- right next door in, in the neighboring state, uh, compared to teams in the AAC like, you know, Temple, Tulane, East Carolina, there's got to be way more appeal. No question. I, I think you said it all right there. I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct that the pulse of UConn's fan base is totally uh, beyond excited. You know, there was an announcement last week where Campbell Pavilion and XL Center, rightfully so, are going to take measures where fans aren't going to be allowed in the arenas at the start of the season. They'll see how things go from there and what the recommendations are from public health officials. So uh, even though that UConn has sold a a recent record number of season tickets and that the, the tangible excitement is there even amidst what is a, a really tough economic climate. Fans are spending money. They want to come out and see these games. Dan Hurley's done, he's done it. He's turned this thing around. And, uh, you know, I think that there is a lot of credit that goes to Dave Benedict, the athletic director, to not let football revenue, potential football revenues, get in the way of what could be a, the perfect fit and the right fit for the men's basketball and women's basketball programs and the other, all the other sports as well, saving money on travel for, um, you know, the sports that are non-revenue generators. So I, I think that, that UConn has, uh, you know, with, with football being a priority for a lot of schools and the Big East not having any football schools, that's, uh, that's the reason why that conference was able to be created where schools didn't have to worry about that piece of the puzzle and UConn in part has seemed to be able to figure it out with a TV deal with CBS sports network. And um, you know, so I, as an independent football program, so I think that everything is in, in the right place for the program in good conscience to make a, a real run at becoming a basketball power again on the men's side. Yeah. And I mean, for, for year one of being back in the big East, uh, UConn being at number four, uh, I personally had him at three, um, but to be at four, um, over, how, how, how must you be feeling, you know, if you're a UConn fan or even internally within the program, you know, from that preseason poll? Yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't take too much sleuthing on UConn Twitter to find out what they thought of UConn being just behind Providence College in the preseason poll. I think a lot of people, uh, almost everybody wearing blue and white agreed with you that UConn should have been three and that. Providence College should have been four, but I guess that adds some fuel to the fire for the early season matchup. And, uh, you know, there were, I think that's, but those are the sort of rivalries and that's the sort of uh, bravado and confidence that you want to have because Providence College's fan base is going to shoot it right back at you. And, you know, we're already seeing on Twitter, whether it's Marquette, whether it's Xavier or Georgetown, a lot of these active fan bases are having a real good time going back and forth Seton Hall. Uh, having a real good time going back and forth with one another. And that's what college athletics should be about. It's fun. It's, uh, it's exciting. And I think, you know, it's, it's so hard to watch the, the, the teams over the last few years have to struggle through 
defections and uh, you know just not the right chemistry, not the right pieces to to make a, a good seven or eight man rotation. And now UConn, maybe that starting five isn't quite certain in terms of okay, who's going to be the guy that goes out besides James Booknight and gets us some points every night? I don't think there's that Christian Vital role player like they had last year, where Vital you knew you knew that alongside Booknight and Vital you just had you had two guys that could go out and score. I don't think we know the answer to that yet, who that number two and number three option is going to be. But I think the depth of this UConn team is going to be really impressive. I think that uh, eight, nine, ten deep is something they haven't had the luxury of. And I think there are, there are enough people on that roster to go ten deep on a given night, and you're not going to lose too much when players eight, nine, and ten come off the bench. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to touch on the supporting cast in just a second. But, you know, one of the names you brought up in terms of, you know, fan engagement and all that, uh, Seton Hall um, in uh, his availability. Uh, Kevin Willard, always outspoken, said that he thought UConn coming back, quote unquote, sucked. And essentially, like, we don't know if he actually – means it or not that like saying like he was against UConn coming back and all that but essentially like this is the kind of stuff that lights the fuel to the fire of a rivalry so you know like internally it you know in the state of Connecticut you know amongst fans it, you know is there a little bit of beef um, um, being conjured uh, between the Huskies and the Pirates well, I think that the uh, Adama Sonogo recruiting situation where it seemed like he was leaning Seton Hall, then all of a sudden he got swept out from underneath the, the Pirates by, by UConn. I think UConn fans are having a lot of fun with that. And I, I think Kevin Willard, you know, the, the other part of that comment, uh, which you quoted correctly, but there was another piece of it as well where he said something to the effect of, oh, I voted against them coming back to the Big East, which – we know he didn't. The, the school presidents voted on that. He right. had no say. He had no say in any of it. But, oh, yeah, he's, he's putting out bulletin board material. That's fun. That's good stuff. And I think, I think the, initial, um, the initial thought was, wait, did he really vote against UConn? Is that, is that true? And then everyone on UConn Twitter realized later, okay, that's, that's not true. He didn't vote. Presidents voted. But it has that same feel of when UConn was left out of um, going to the ACC, right, where Boston College voted against UConn going with them and Virginia Tech and Miami. And so I think there are still some, some wounds that are just slightly open from conference realignments past that Kevin Willard may have stuck the, the knife in. It might have been a butter knife, but he still stuck the knife in a little bit there and had some fun with the UConn fans. Yeah, and I, I think the matchup, too, is going to be special considering Danny Hurley's background of being yeah. – um, you know, a Seton Hall guard in the early 90s. You know, he met his wife at Seton Hall. Um, and uh, strangely enough, uh, his, one of his sons, he is now a senior um, at the Hall. Um, I, you know, I got to know him when he was a freshman. I was, when I was a senior there. Um, and I'll tell you what, um, the matchup in Newark, whether there be fans there or not, is going to be very interesting. And honestly, I, like – I'm, I'm waiting on the rest of the conference schedule to come out, but I feel like a top five matchup to see, whether that be in Newark or in stores or Hartford, wherever they choose it to be between Gamble and XL Center, that first Seton Hall-UConn matchup has to be a top five matchup to see uh, this coming season. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think, you know, honestly, with the way things are going and 
I, I'm hopeful that they're going to get in as many games as they possibly can. So I don't think fans are going to take for granted a single matchup this year. But on paper, if you're playing the full slate, UConn and Seton Hall this year and in years forward, uh, I think it's going to be competitive. And I think there's going to be a little extra there with, with Hurley on the sideline. And uh, let's talk about what the schedule that we do know. Um, the first five-game slate, December 11th through the 23rd, uh, starting with a Friday night showdown at Gamble uh, against an old-time rival of theirs, uh, St. John's. And then from there, they're going to go to D.C. to play Georgetown on Sunday, December 13th. And then they have a road, another road game. They're going to be at Providence on the 17th, home against Creighton the 20th. And then they close out on the 23rd in Chicago against DePaul. Um, I think, you know, it's – I think the strength of schedule, pretty good. Like, it's not, it's not amazing. It's not that bad either. I, I think it's middle of the road in terms of, uh, you know, the degree of difficulty that they have. The Creighton home game is going to be huge. At Providence, that first – regional rivalry matchup is going to be one to watch. Uh, but, you know, in that five-game stretch, uh, where do you see UConn kind of panning out? Well, I, I think that, again, some of, the, some of the wounds of years past for UConn fans is that they haven't taken care of business in the AAC against teams that they should beat. And, uh, you know, when you, when you go into these seasons and you're UConn in the AAC and they – you know, they're ranked preseason three or four or two or whatever they've been years past. And you start losing to some of the teams that are eight, nine, and 10 in the conference, that gets the fan base on edge. And so until, until this team shows that they can beat the teams that they should beat, um, I think that you're, you're hoping that they beat, you know, they, you, you hope that they beat Creighton or Providence one of them, and then you hope that they take two out of three from the other three schools. Having said that, in the preseason polls, St. John's 9, DePaul 10, Georgetown 11, and those are three teams on your schedule. So I think if you're UConn, you're trying to win all five, but realistically, you want to beat those three teams that are at the bottom of the conference. If you're really the number four team in the conference, you should be able to beat 9, 10, and 11 twice a year. And then if you're um, looking at the rest of it, Creighton at home, Providence on the road. They're the two, three teams ahead of you. They're the, the spots you're trying to track down. So if you can earn a split of those, I think four and one is a realistic target um, for UConn in that five-game stretch where they would be confident that they've got a good thing going this year. I think if you come out of there three and two and you, you, know, you don't really put up a great effort against Creighton and Providence, I think there's a little doubt in your mind going, hmm, Maybe we've still got a lot of work to do. We've got some pieces in place, but maybe this isn't quite the year we're ready to, to make a real run at the Big East. Like, I see them going three and two. Uh, I mean, the three games against, you know, St. John's, Georgetown, DePaul, you got to win those games, period. But uh, I think they'll be in a good place with a three and two record if and only if they put up fights against Providence and Creighton. Like, they cannot go into Providence, for example, and just no show on the road. They got to hold serve at home, even in a losing effort against Creighton, because Creighton just, they're incredible three-point shooting team. They always have been under Greg McDermott. But if they can find a way to limit the three-point production and stay competitive for all 40 minutes and not let Creighton get on a stretch where they're just hitting on all cylinders, you know, it'll be a positive take from it. But four and one, I think, is a good realistic target for them to shoot for. They would love to go five and zero, oh, but I don't know if that's 
totally realistic to expect at that point. No, there's so many new pieces. And this is a team that, uh, you know, when you, when you look back at their numbers from last year, they, they lost Christian Vital, And that's a huge piece. That's 16 and a half points per game, one of the best shooters in program history. He also was second on your team in assists. So there's just a restructuring. And, oh, by the way, he led the team in rebounding from the point guard position. So there's just a restructuring that's going to need to happen. You assume James Booknight is going to take over and be the alpha in the offense. And maybe he's an 18-point-per-game guy. There really seems to be a lot of thought that that's the case. But, again, coming out of the gate so strong and thinking with all of the craziness that's going on, you know, for these, these athletes and their, their training schedule and their class schedule and a lot of them just getting adjusted um, to college life. You know, we haven't talked about the freshmen, but Andre Jackson, the top 40 prospect in the country, according to ESPN, and Adama Sonogo is another top 75 guy as a power forward. And then Javante Brown-Ferguson is a lanky 6'11 center type. Sonogo's a, a beefy center, a big rebounder, and Andre Jackson is more of a, a high-flying, Rudy Gay, small forward type. So those are three guys that are going to factor in the top eight of the rotation. And on top of that, Tyrese Martin, a big transfer coming over from URI, who's immediately eligible. So four of your top eight uh, are guys that have never played one minute of basketball for, for the University of Connecticut. And a, a couple of your other top guys coming back in Tyler Pauly, is coming off of a major knee surgery, should be ready for the season. And then a cook, a cook is coming off of an Achilles tear and he had major surgery and might be ready for the season opener. So, I mean, there are, there's so much talent to be had. Um, I don't think, you know, as I'm talking through it, I think five and O seems even more unrealistic when you put all of that into play. Um, but definitely taking care of, taking care of those games against the bottom three, St. John's, DePaul and Georgetown on on talent alone rather than on cohesion as a team there are nights in the big east where you just need to win games on talent alone and maybe UConn can show some of that out of the gate yeah and uh honestly and you talk about you know there's a lot of pieces on the roster you know that you know uh that you want to step up and be supporting good supporting cast members for James Booknight who I thought was going to be a first team guy he ended up being a second team guy behind David Duke I mean I got the rest of them right including Ma, uh, Mamu Kelashvili from Seton Hall like I mean I was shocked by how well I called my shots for the most part um, and that includes the preseason poll um, but the one guy I'm looking forward to the most in terms of him uh, now being eligible after sitting out his transfer year and hopefully joining Booknight in the backcourt I've, I've been big on R.J. Cole. Yeah, I didn't even mention him. Right, I know. I mentioned Martin. I mentioned all these new guys. So, hey, how about that? A fifth guy that has not played a minute for UConn that is going to be in that top eight, nine rotation. So, R.J. Cole comes over. The numbers for R.J. Cole are impossible to ignore. I mean, what, what he was able to do when, you know, just outside of uh, – outside of a power conference, but what he was able to do for his first two years. He's a, he's a junior, a little bit more background on R.J. Cole. He's going to be fighting with um, Tyler Gaffney for the starting point guard spot. Gaffney was a freshman last year, showed some spark at the end of the year. If Cole wasn't there, I think Gaffney would plug in as the starting point guard this year and no one would bat an eyelash. But R.J. Cole, you know, he transfers from Howard University out of the MEAC, 
as a freshman averaged almost 24 points per game and then as a sophomore became more of a distributor and averaged 22 points per game. Uh, so this is a guy that comes in averaging 23 points per game in his college career over a couple of years. Sure, he did it in the, the MEAC, but this is somebody that, uh, you know, if you think 23 points per game as a freshman and sophomore, you sit out, you bulk up as a junior, you have your redshirt junior season coming up. I mean, this is a guy that should be ready to go. He had a full year of, uh, of preparing for this, and we'll, we'll see what he's ready to do. And honestly, you know, there has been a track record of guys um, who have come from smaller conferences and um, succeeded in the Big East, and particularly with the MEAC, actually, uh, from Xavier's 2017 squad, uh, their grad transfer, uh, Malcolm Bernard, came from the same conference, the MEAC, out of Florida A&M, and proved to be an instrumental piece for the Musketeers making their Cinderella run to the Elite Eight, um, you know, Although he was like a smaller stretch four at only uh, six six, again, um, guys who you know start off small, they can make a big impact. You know, jumping into a bigger pond, um, as uh, as Michael Scott would uh, would put it. You know, he you know, he he's a he's a big fit, um, like he he was a big fish in a small pond, but now he probably just sees himself as a still as a big fish, but just in a much bigger pond. And so I mentioned Tyrese Martin, a transfer from University of Rhode Island, uh, who was recruited to URI by Danny Hurley. And Martin is somebody that isn't going to sit out a year. So that, that jump, that jump from the A-10 to the Big East is going to be a little, I think, more noticeable for a guy in Martin than it might be for Cole. Even though it's a MEAC to the Big East, you have a year of working with your strength and conditioning team. You have a year of running through practices. Martin, again, uh, after his second year at URI, 13 points per game, seven rebounds. He's a six-six junior. I don't think those rebounding numbers are going to quite hold up. Um, you know, I, I, I think that Martin is somebody that has an absolute role on this team, especially on nights where Andre Jackson, freshman, starting small forward perhaps, or at least a key guy off the bench. If, if Andre Jackson has a freshman kind of night, and you get to bring in a junior Martin off the bench and be, all right, you're our, you're our – um, you're our small forward that's going to eat up some minutes here. That's just such a huge luxury to have for Danny Hurley at his disposal. And, uh, you know, to have, you know, all of these tools at your disposal, I, you know, if you're Danny Hurley, you got to be thanking your lucky stars. Um, essentially, you know, this is probably the most talented roster he's been able to work with since, you know, I would say 2017 and 18 when he was at URI, when he made it to the tournament both years, um, you know, <laughs> And some of the names I remember, like a guy like Fats Russell, which amazing name. Just, and, and the kid was a baller, too. Um, and, uh, oh, my God, there was another game. Uh, uh, I want to say it was uh, Ter Jared Terrell, I believe it was. Yep, he was another guard. Um, yeah, there was a, they had a, a really good power forward as well. Um, yeah, I mean, just the depth that they had, I mean – it was Hassan Martin was the other guy alongside Cyril Langevin, who was young, but we know what Langevin has turned into at URI, but they had a really good roster those couple of years. Yeah. And I mean, now that Danny Hurley has some more resources at his disposal now in a bigger conference and a bigger name that just draws, you know, I think this essentially, you know, people are looking at this like, okay, this is the year UConn has to make something of themselves. Uh, so I guess the question I got to pose to you now um, 
do you think they're going to, you know, exceed expectations kind of like, or just stay the baseline of where they are in the preseason poll at four mate or underperform. And ultimately, you know, do you see this team making the tournament for the first time in five years? And if you do, uh, where do you see them kind of like, you know, panning out in the field of 68? So this year, I think they are a tournament team. And when, you know, last night, as we record this on November 4th, uh, last night, there was some news to be had across the country, but the news that was buried amidst all of that was Ken Palm revealed his, uh, his rankings and UConn fell in at about number 45 in his preseason rankings, which a little lower than I think many would have expected. UConn, people are talking about them as a, you know, receiving some top 25 votes in some preseason polls. They're a talented team, even if you don't think they're a top 25 team, that they should be getting some votes. Some people should be giving them votes. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the floor for them, at least at the start of the year. Do they exceed that? Do they, you know, do they fall short of that? We'll see. But I think 45 is incredibly low for Ken Palm. So uh, based on that number, I'd say they are going to exceed that. And the other, the other side of this is that this is a, it's going to be a, a bit of a wonky year. And scheduling-wise, if you lose a game or two to teams that you shouldn't, and then you lose three or four games due to coronavirus that just don't get played, all of a sudden your limited schedule already, you've got a couple of bad early season losses on your schedule and you've got no time to make that up. You have no time to build the confidence of the selection committee. So I think that the, the, the margin of error is razor, razor thin this year. And just for reasons beyond many teams control and entering a year like this, which can be perilous at times, I, I just have to believe that a team like UConn is not as equipped to come out of the gate and just hit the ground running like a Creighton does or a Villanova, a team that returns a lot of players from last year, a team that needs to find its identity for a couple of weeks. They might lose those one or two games that come back to bite them at the end where you lose a couple of games in November and December before conference play. And then you come out like gangbusters and roll through conference in a typical season and the selection committee forgets all about those two bad losses back in November. This is just going to be a different kind of year. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I mean, I think they are a tournament team. I still think they're the number three team in the conference behind Villanova and Creighton. But to me, that gap between two and three is much more noticeable, but the gap between, you know, three, four, five. And I think, you know, like that second tier is three, four, five. And although Biggie's preseason poll has Providence, UConn, Seton Hall. I actually have it UConn, Seton Hall, Providence. Uh, I think Providence with losing, you know, some of the seniors that they have, specifically Alpha Diallo, Lawan Pipkins. I'm really skeptical to see, like, can Jared Bynum somehow replace, you know, the je ne sais quoi that Pipkins brought to the table. I mean, he was a big-time free-throw shooter. I think he shot well over 90%. And then especially at Villanova, do was hitting some clutch shots. He was a bad, bad man. Um, so that's – I just don't see that in Jared Bynum. Um, but I think UConn's in uh, third place in the conference. Seed line, I got him at seven, like one of the lower seven seeds. Um, not quite top 25, but, you know, 26, 27, 28-ish. I think that's where I think they're going to end up. So uh, UConn fans um, – I think they should be – I think when they hear the number seven, I feel like they should be thinking 
like the Price is Right game. That's a lucky number because, you know, look at what happened the last time they got a seven seed. It's been a long time since they made the tournament at all. I think any single digit seed where they're not sweating it out on selection night, they'd be more than happy with that. And, uh, you know, that it's all going to remain to be seen again. Um, you know, from the time recording this just three weeks until opening night, uh, got to keep that kind of keep building that hype. And uh, of course, uh, joining me to help build up that hype even more to a fan base is already just rabid with excitement, just ready to gear up for their first year back in the big East. Uh, Adam Giardino, Adam, it's a pleasure having you on. And um Honestly, I'm hopefully looking to travel uh, sometime during Big East season. Definitely want to, you know, get my name out there to, um, you know, coaches and make sure they see my face and know who I am. So I definitely want to take a trip to UConn, Providence, you know, maybe do a little detour and uh, definitely look forward to crossing paths sometime soon, man. Good stuff. And uh, as far as UConn fans are concerned, hopefully there's, a, there's an NCAA tournament preview episode that you're doing where maybe I can hop on again with you. Yeah, and honestly, not one great idea that was actually brought up, I think I might do this right before the season starts. Um, Matt DeMarine is from White and Blue Review, which is Creighton's blog. He actually gave me a great idea for a Big East roundtable where I kind of get like, I, I'm looking to get one delegate of sorts from each Big East institution, um, you know, from, you know, people who cover the conference or uh, just who have the best beat that I have in my circle of sorts, have a roundtable discussion to talk about what's going to happen this year and all that. So I, I think it's, you're the obvious choice for my UConn delegation. Uh, I'll work on the rest. I'm still working on, you know, trying to find uh, DePaul. Uh, I'm definitely got to, uh, I know, I know being in new England, I know you can find me somebody in Providence, but I definitely <laughs> look forward to uh, finding a full round table of 11 and uh, hopefully we'll get some good discussion in uh, right before the season starts and uh, get, get the table set for what should be an exciting season of college basketball, one like we've never seen before. No, no doubt. The only thing that we can be sure of is that it's going to be uh, twists and turns, and there'll be plenty of storylines, that's for sure. Thanks for having me on, Tim. All right, more on the Igloo coming on after this. So that does it for this episode of the Igloo. A big thank you again to Adam Giardino for taking the time to talk UConn basketball and – his role in covering one of the all-time great runs, not just in the history of college basketball, but in all of sports with UConn's improbable run to the national championship in 2011 led by cardiac Kemba Walker. So coming up on the next episode of the Igloo that'll be coming out on Friday... I know I promised on the last episode that I was going to have my top 10 players list in the history of the new Big East, and it's a good list. It was tough to you know narrow it down to 10, but I got that list for you, and I know I should have had it up for this one, but I definitely wanted to make sure I had my time constraints all good and keep this episode you know, within an hour for sure, but promise you on the next one you're going to find out my list for the top 10 players in the new Big East era. Something that I know will generate some great debate because, you know, there are a lot of names that can be definitely thrown out there. Some that might have made it that shouldn't have and some that didn't that should have. So I would love to, you know, share my list and then get yours, you know, once that comes out. 
because I love getting your feedback and I definitely want to generate some discussions uh, over social media and wherever else over you know something like this because you know there have been a lot of great players that have come through the Big East since realignment and for me to narrow it down to 10 it was really really tough uh, I, I think picking the first nine were pretty easy but picking that 10th was a nightmare because there were a lot of names I was tossing around in my head but I feel I feel pretty good about who I picked for my 10th one but you know that'll be for you to decide as well so that'll be on the next episode of the igloo coming out on Friday so until then this is Timmy Ice signing off from the igloo thanks again for tuning in and I will catch you next time until then stay safe